But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved and the elements will melt with fire. But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace, without spot or blemish, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Well, as Elaine said, my name is Derek Belace. I'm the Director of Connectional Ministries for the Oklahoma Annual Conference. And it's great to be here with you this morning on this second Sunday of Advent as we think together about the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ again, that second coming, and the coming of Christ again as we celebrate on Christmas in just a few weeks. My roots with Village run deep. They actually come through my wife, Rebecca Wallace, who was on staff here for a number of years. We were married here in 2006. She's ill this morning, and so she stayed home. But as I was leaving, she said to me that when she and Tom Huber went to South Africa together, he ate two plates at every meal because she would push hers <laughs> over to him, all the things she didn't want <laughs> to try. And um, it's interesting to me now because she works for a global NGO and is constantly traveling uh, the world and eating all kinds of different things. So I'm just going to say another, uh, another effective Tom Huber teaching to show people how you can eat other food in other places. I want to say a word of thanks to this congregation for the ways in which you support the work of the Oklahoma Annual Conference as you might imagine, these last two years have been difficult in many ways for the work of the conference. They've been difficult as we've dealt with disaffiliation and with uh, the news around that and the publicity that surrounds that. And we have turned to people in your congregation uh, when we needed assistance. We turned to Reverend Dr. Elaine Robinson, a person who deeply understands how to communicate with other people who do not understand the way the United Methodist Church works and the way the connection works 
and the deep things like the trust clause and other ways. And so I want to say thanks to Elaine for your willingness to help the annual conference when we needed another voice, another person to help us think about that. I also want to say a word of thanks to my friend Judy Horn, who uh, plays for the annual conference uh, sessions, uh, plays at our building where the ministry center, the conference office, people call it, uh, where we try to worship together as well as a staff on a regular basis. And Judy comes and offers her gifts to us during the middle of the week. She offers her gifts to the annual conference. And when we need other musicians, she finds them from here as well. And so, Judy, thank you for all the ways that you support and for all the ways that you all continue to nurture people who support the work of the annual conference. Last time I was here to preach, there wasn't one person sitting out there. It was on Palm Sunday, 2020, during the midst of COVID. And I don't even know how long, maybe only three or four weeks in at that time that we were doing online worship and trying to figure all those things out. And there were all kinds of instructions, like you got to stand here to get the camera just right. And we couldn't touch each other or see each other or hug each other. We were all trying to keep our distance. And so I told Elaine then I'd be happy to come back and see if there are ever people that sit in these pews. And sure enough, there are. And so thank you for the invitation, Elaine. It's great to be with you all this morning. I was really kind of toying around with the various texts for Advent because here's the deal. As a guest fill-in preacher, I rarely get to preach during Advent. And so I was thinking about this beautiful playground of all these all these texts that were before me, right? The, the, the text of John the Baptist calling the people to repentance and to be, to be baptized and, and, and the text from Isaiah, comfort, comfort, oh my people. I mean, these beautiful texts. And then I listened last week to Elaine's beautiful sermon on Paul's epistle to the Corinthians about living at peace, about being people of peace, about, about recognizing that that is one of the the gifts we bring during Advent. And so I thought, well, what is the epistle for this week? And I read it, and I thought, I've never preached from 2 Peter, and what a beautiful, beautiful, haunting reminder that we find there about this meaning of Advent, about what happens during this time of waiting that we find ourselves in. Now, at our house... We have a 15-and-a-half-year-old who's just learning how to drive. And we have an 8-year-old. And I thought about scanning Elaine, but didn't. But she's made a calendar that she marks off each day, as you might imagine, leading up to uh, to Christmas Day. And our 15-and-a-half-year-old marks off every time she can drive. So she's at church this morning at confirmation, but she told me when I pick her up that she wants to drive home. So there's all kinds of waiting that's happening in our home these days. But I also travel for work. Some of you uh, probably remember that or still do that. And I was reminded of a story that I had read about the executives at the Houston airport who were receiving all these complaints because of the wait time that people had waiting on their baggage to arrive after they got off the plane. And so they looked at all this uh, data, they looked at all this analysis and found kind of the time period in which most of the people were complaining, and they increased the number of people who worked that shift, and they got the wait time down to eight minutes, which you think, well, eight minutes, that's pretty good. But the complaints didn't stop. The complaints actually remained at the same level. And so they did more analysis. 
And they recognized that it only took people one minute to walk from the plane to the carousel, and seven minutes they were waiting at the carousel for their bag. So 88% of the time that they were waiting was not in transit, but in standing still. And so the complaints remained at the same level. So you know what they did? They moved the arrival gates to the outer side of the terminal, and they started putting people's bags to the outermost carousels, and you know what? The complaints dropped to zero. What that tells me is that there is a big difference between objective wait time and subjective wait time. They were not waiting any less time. In fact, they were walking further, walking longer, taking more time. But when they arrived at the carousel, the bag was there. They didn't have to wait. I want you to think for a moment about the difference between subjective waiting time and and objective waiting time. For those of us who are adults, who live in kind of the world that doesn't anticipate as much about the anxiety around Christmas Day, it's just 52 weeks every year in between one and the next, right? It's four weeks of Advent. I mean, those are all objective numbers that we know, and yet we would say things like what? When we get to December 1st, it's like time speeds up. Everything happens so quickly. And yet, if you ask one of your children, they would say what? Time slows down. Christmas is never coming, right? There's a big difference between objectively thinking about waiting time and subjectively thinking about it. And most of the images that we have, I think, around waiting really are about annoyance and irritation, right? We, we've been placed on hold at the insurance company. We have to wait in line at the supermarket. We, we, we wait at the doctor's office for the test results to come back. The list of things we wait on go on and on and on. And it's only exacerbated by the fact that we live in a culture that's very instantaneous. Right? I didn't do it because the music was so beautiful, but I could have been doing Christmas shopping on my phone, at Amazon, making purchases. Some of you might be right now. We don't have to wait on news. Can't sleep, turn it on. It's no longer a recording of what happened earlier in the evening, right? No, it's live, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We can find out anything we want at any time. And so waiting... Waiting might just be the ultimate in the countercultural action of society. But I don't think it's non-action, as the text indicates this morning. Waiting isn't just sitting around being passive. Yet the Christian life is characterized by waiting. Now, Elaine, I don't know, do you, do you guys still read Tillich? <laughs> When I was in seminary, we read Paul Tillich's Systematic Theology in one of my courses. But thank God we also read one of Tillich's books called Shaking the Foundations, which are a bunch of sermons, so that I felt like when I had to speak about Tillich, I could actually say something that was logical because the systematic piece didn't do it. But the Shaking the Foundations did. There was this quote in that book that I never forget. Our time is a time of waiting. Waiting is itself special destiny. And every time is a time of waiting 
waiting for the breaking in of eternity. All time runs forward. All time, both history and in personal life, is expectation. Time itself is waiting. Waiting not for another time, but for that which is eternal. It's not like we're waiting for no reason. Actually, the waiting that we do is pregnant with expectation, right? It's what Advent reminds us of each and every year when it comes around so that we can practice this intentional waiting again. We are waiting for the eternal. There's this juxtaposition, right, if you will, between the first coming of Christ that we just sang about in the song and Christ's second coming when he comes for eternity. This is the kind of waiting that is characterized by this text, Second Peter. And the, the, the story this morning comes from the very end of his epistle. Second Peter, likely written a couple generations after his death, written in his name, so we don't exactly know who wrote it. But the concerns, when you read Second Peter, the concerns don't seem to be of a community of people who are, are, are sort of in that kind of first generation just waiting with that expectation that Christ is going to come again, but the kind of a group of people that are pretty far removed from the return of Christ and asking this question, well, is he ever going to return again? The same kind of question we may be asking some 2,000 years later. So to this concern, the, the author of this text writes... This, this beautiful epistle. I want to turn back to 2 Peter 1, 1, though, as we begin. We started in 3, but I just want to read to you verse 1 of chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus, listen, to those who have received a faith as precious as ours, through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. What this epistle calls us to on this second Sunday of Advent is to first remember the faith that is as precious to us as ours is, that has come to us from God through Jesus Christ. In some ways, we remember on this second Sunday of Advent, the first, the first Christmas, if you will, the first coming of Jesus, because we don't have this precious faith unless Christ came the first time. During Advent, we remember yet again the God who comes to us through Jesus Christ, through this, through this baby in its most unlikely way. And yes, we gather, and we think about it every year, and we know that when we get to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, the story ends as it always does, or does it just begin? Right, but Peter, whoever wrote this, said, don't forget you received this faith as precious as ours through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. If we turn just to where we read this morning, where Elaine so beautifully read for us, 
we see that there's another gift, not just the gift of Jesus, this precious faith we have, but this, this gift that waiting itself is a gift to us. Look at verses 8 and 9. Do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord, listen, is not slow about His promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, that's what I was trying to to make the point between this objective waiting and subjective waiting. Even the writer of 2 Peter recognizes that people experience waiting very differently. He's saying that God is allowing this time because God is patient, that God's patience is a gift to us. And notice what he says to do during that time, to repent, to change your ways. What if the gift of Advent comes along every year, somewhere between the last time we observed Lent and Easter and the observance of Advent again, to remind us that the life that we live is one of both righteousness, but also of turning of repenting, of making sure that we're in right relationship with God. Just as we receive Christ as, a, as an infant incarnate and a baby each Christmas season, we can receive this interim period as a gift where we can engage in our Christian discipleship, as a gift in which we can turn, in which we can make a change, We've been doing that in our own lives as, as I recognize the boundaries between work and home had been blurred. And we were driving down the road the other day and I was on a in very intense work call and when I got off, my eight-year-old daughter said, some days I wish you didn't have a phone. You want to come to repentance? You want to change your ways? It's a gift to have this interim period where we can do another thing that the writer tells us. We can focus on our growth in the image of Christ. Look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found first, what, at peace, what you heard last week, without spot or blemish, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. You see, we can use this time period to grow in our image and likeness of Christ. Now, he, he, he sort of blushes over it here, but if you go back to ver- chapter 1 where we just were earlier in verse 5, he writes this. How do you grow in the image of Christ? For this very reason, you must make every effort to support your faith with goodness and goodness with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with endurance, and endurance with godliness, and godliness with mutual affection, and mutual affection with love. You see, he doesn't just say, do these things. He gives us a bit of a roadmap. 
This is what we sing about when we sing that great hymn, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling. How does the fourth verse go? Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. What? Change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. What if we use this interim time period to do just that, to allow ourselves to be lost in in awe and wonder and love and praise as we grow in our Christian discipleship, as we, as we think about what the, the writer says, all these things that stack one on top of another on top of another until he ends with what? Love. That love is the way that we do this work. Finally, he says, I think that we can use this time wisely. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. In other words, instead of asking ourselves all the time, why not? Why, why isn't Christ coming back? Why, why do we have to keep waiting? What are we supposed to do during this time? That we regard it as a gift. That we regard it as part of our salvation of our souls. Meaning we can do certain things during this time. We can share our faith with others. We can engage in mission work. We can reimagine bringing heaven to earth. We can, we can work for justice. We can work for righteousness. We can live at our faith each day, not looking for what's to come, but often looking at what's right in front of us. As I mentioned, the other text this morning is the text in John, John the Baptist, Mark 1, where John comes saying, you've got to be baptized for repentance of sin. You've got to turn your life if you want to make preparation for the one to come, to make straight paths, he says. So if you've got a a hymnal there in front of you, I want you to turn to page 34. I want you to turn to page 34. I want us to think together, instead of trying to remember all the verses that we read today, that maybe we go back to the thing that's most central to who we are. That we go back to the three vows that we take when we are baptized and join the church that maybe this interim living is really nothing more than living out our baptismal vows that we've already taken. These, I think, are actually easier sometimes to remember than some of the things I've even said today. We ask three questions, right? On behalf of the whole church, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? What's the first question about? The first question is about, will you use this time of waiting to turn, to repent, and to, and to probably, if you're anything like me, you have to do that more than once. I have to do it more than once a day, sometimes more than once an hour. Right? This isn't something that we just master. Right? Over and over, we ask ourselves, are we renouncing the wickedness that we see in our world And are we repenting of our own sin? Interesting that we connect those two. What's the second question? Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to do that, to resist evil, injustice, and oppression 
in whatever forms they present themselves? What if during this interim time period of waiting, even just during this Advent season, we were thinking about what is evil? Where do I see injustice? Where do I see oppression? And how can I resist it? Not assuming that someone else is going to do that work, but that I, as someone who has vowed to do that, am going to do it. And then what's the third question? Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, put your whole trust in His grace, and promise to serve Him as your Lord in union with the church, which Christ has opened to people of all ages, nations, and races? See, this is the question about us. Do we repent? Do we use the power that God has given us, this grace that we've been filled with? And then are we willing to serve Him in the world each and every day, even as we wait, even as the time period is longer than some of us might have imagined? even if sometimes when I'm sitting next to my daughter, I'm thinking to myself, now would be a good time to come, Lord Jesus. And if you don't come, at least take the will. Or is it like waiting on our bags where objectively... We weren't waiting that long, but it just felt like a really long time. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I see evil and justice and oppression in the world, I think to myself, how long, Lord? When I think about my own service in the world, sometimes I think, how much more can I do? And yet the waiting period that we're in, if we can see it as a gift, if we can see it as God's patience for us, then we redeem the time much differently. What is Christ calling you to do today during this season of Advent? One of the things I think he's calling all of us to do is to recognize and to redeem this time, to not allow it to become so overwhelmed with the busyness of the preparations for the season that we find ourselves in, that we can't recognize the gift of time itself. And the gift that we have to not only live out our faith, but to share our faith, but to work in places where others have turned away and to say to ourselves, what do I need to do? What do I need to repent of? What do I need to lay aside so that I can move in the direction of the manger, so that I can see this gift which comes again to us, born in the form of a baby, that the writer of 2 Peter says is a faith as precious as ours. Let us pray. And now may the Lord torment you. 
May the Lord keep before you the faces of the hungry, the lonely, the rejected, and the despised. May the Lord afflict you with pain for the hurt, the wounded, the oppressed, the abused, and victims of violence. May your God grace you with agony, a burning thirst for justice and righteousness. May the Lord give you courage and strength and compassion to make ours a better world, to make your community a better community, and to make our church a better church. And may you do your best to make it so. And after you have done your best, may the Lord grant you peace. Amen and amen. Those are the words of Bishop Woody White given at the conclusion, the last words of the 1996 General Conference, I return to them over and over as I think to myself, what is God through Jesus Christ calling me to do? What is the turn that I'm being called to make? Amen and amen.